This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. Welcome back. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. We are closing in on one year before the Brexit takes effect, and there are still many things to be ironed out. And as we get closer, it appears that some of the citizens of the UK are becoming less and less enthralled with the prospects. In fact, there have recently been some groups coming together to see about possibly having another vote on the cutoff of relations with the European Union. Could we actually see all of this go up in smoke in the U.K., stay in the EU. And that's just one of many intriguing storylines playing out right now overseas. To delve into all of these, we welcome back our friend Brendan O'Leary, professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. He joins me in studio. And with us on the phone is Michelle Egan, professor in the School of International Service at American University. And she is also a global fellow at the Wilson Center. My friend Brendan, great to see you again, sir. Good morning, Dan. Thank you. Michelle, as always, great to have you on the phone with us. Thank you, Dan. All right. So I, I threw out kind of the, the, the big the big fish out there. These stories are starting to circulate a little bit about whether or not uh, there should be another vote. Uh, do you take any credence in it, Brendan? Well, there's a non-party movement to try and have a second vote. Uh, I don't think its prospects are good until there is a decisive um, imbroglio inside Parliament itself. So if Parliament, as it has to, makes a decision in the coming months on whether or not the UK will remain in a customs union or the customs union with the European Union, that will, in effect, bring a lot of uh, the planned ambitions of some of those who wanted to get out to a shuddering halt. And we'll see if that happens. But until that uh, decisive vote, uh, I don't think we can anticipate much success for the uh, referendum campaign. It is true that the polls have now shown uh, a significant shift in favour of remaining. Um, the, those who, who voted to leave remain solid in their preference for leaving. But the, the don't knows and don't cares and those who didn't vote the last time, they have significantly shifted into the remain camp. So there's a move in public opinion and that will, I think, be reflected eventually in the stances taken by the main opposition party, the Labour Party. Michelle? I agree. I think a second referendum is worrisome in the sense it might be divisive. There has been a shift in the polls, but a lot of Leave voters have dug their heels in, and I think that they will be... um, Right now, you know, when you think of consumer prices and you think of what is the impact, people are not really seeing it on the ground. I mean, the economic forecasts from the IMF are not very good. But when people see it in their pocketbook, so to speak, then there might be regrets and so forth. But the political situation right now is problematic for Theresa May. She has a thin uh, majority. She has no majority. She depends upon the Democratic Unionist Party, as you know, Michelle. Yes, with the, the DUP. But the problem is, is that we're getting so many mixed views, no consistent policy really from the Labour Party either. You know, Corbyn has never been a big fan of the EU. So it's, it's a very, very difficult environment in 
I also think that the final comment I would raise is that you look at the EU, it's moving on. What is the status then, in your mind, of both Theresa May, Brendan, and Jeremy Corbyn at this point? Well, Mrs. May is uh, the walking dead. Uh, it's a question of uh, when she is executed by her fellow colleagues. Right. If she fails uh, on her current stance, which is to try and um, finesse this, the enormous difficulty she has on Ireland, and if she fails to uh, get a motion through the Commons, which would require the departure to involve leaving both the customs union to free the UK to make trade deals with other countries yeah. and to leave the single market. If she fails in that endeavor, it's extremely difficult to see how she can stay on. But we're in a very curious world because Parliament voted to require an extraordinary majority of Parliament to vote before it could be dissolved inside its normal term limit. So we could face the prospect of a Conservative Prime Minister being deposed and replaced without a fresh general election. Though, um, given the enormous pressures that would flow from that, I, I, I think we would see a general election eventually. So May's position is very difficult. The chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah. Her position is illogical. She wants to get out of the customs union and at the single market and somehow uh, remain on board with Ireland and with the agreements that she's already signed up to with the EU. It does not compute that something will have to give. As for Jeremy Corbyn, his party has been very clever because his party has moved to say that it wants uh, the UK to remain within a customs union or the customs union. And that would close off the prospect of making uh, separate trade agreements. And this, it seems to me, is a wedge to see if they can get the Conservative MPs who are Remainers to vote with Labour yeah. on that platform. Now, everybody who thinks about it for more than 25 minutes, and not a lot do, but <laughs> if, you, if you do think about it for more than 25 minutes, it's illogical to be in the customs union and to leave the single market. Sure. The customs union yeah. is the external face of the single market. The single market is the regulatory apparatus. So to stay in one and uh, not in the other doesn't make a lot of sense. That's why the clever move by the Remainers is to try and uh, fixate on the, the, the customs union, perhaps deliver uh, a contrary vote to Mrs. May's preferences, and then they can see their way forward to uh, unwinding the whole project. Because let's imagine they vote to stay in the customs union. Then it seems to be less logical to get quickly out of the, the single market. And in that scenario, the whole project becomes sure. pointless because yeah. you're locked into the legal and regulatory structure of the yep. single market and the external tariff barrier, and you've deprived yourself of any say in the passage yeah. of the relevant laws and legislation. Michelle? Absolutely. It's, you know, we're a little fixated now on what is a customs union and, you know, the issue, as Brendan pointed out, if you're in the customs union, most customs unions are incomplete. And so, for example, um, the EU-Turkey customs union does not cover agriculture. So then there would still be checks between Northern Ireland on Ireland, and Ireland on agriculture. And so what we're finding is that if you want to stay in a customs union, you still will have regulations that you have to meet 
or you will still have inspections on agriculture or fisheries. And so you're effectively, it's almost like having one foot in and one foot out. So from an economic point of view, it is not the optimal choice. In having said that, um, the other thing, as Brendan is, uh, knows, is that a lot of the pushback is also coming from the House of Lords, um, which, are, um, which are also voting on um, the Customs Union, the Withdrawal Bill, and the uh, inclusion in uh, maintenance of the uh, European uh, human rights, the European Convention on Human Rights that the EU has. So... May has problems within her own party. She's also looking at the fact that um, the House of Lords is also creating a great deal of tensions and problems for her. 844-WHARTON is the number if you would like to join in. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. We're joined in studio by Brendan O'Leary, professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. Michelle Egan from American University and also a global fellow at the uh, Wilson Center. So let's take a step back here for a second, because for those people here in the U.S. that don't follow customs union in general... Give us a sense of what they are, what they all entail, uh, and realistically, from the perspective uh, of the U.K. right now, how important they may be moving forward. Well, a customs union implies that all the members have exactly the same external tariff on goods and services coming into the relevant market. So you sacrifice your right to set your own individual tariff rates. Right. Now, that power, once you join the European Union Customs Union, that power is shared with your fellow members. As a matter of fact, each member state collects the relevant customs and takes a portion for itself and takes a portion uh, towards uh, direct European administration. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that happens if you join the EU Customs Union is you automatically cede your right to make independent trade agreements with other countries. Right. So that's why it's very important for the UKEXITEERS uh, that they not be bound inside the customs union. Now, having uh, a common tariff um, obviously uh, reduces the friction um, uh, between two countries that might be that, that might agree to have a separate customs union. And some of the uh, positions taken by Mrs. May. May's government implies that the UK and the EU could agree some kind of customs arrangements among themselves uh, outside of the structure of the, of the EU. The problem there is largely uh, both technical and, and a, a problem of credibility. The UK um, has lost credibility because quite recently the European Audit Commission found that it had failed to collect two billion Uh, I can't remember whether it's sterling or euros, but we're talking billions, so it doesn't really matter. It's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot of value, Um, yeah. They they failed to collect that on the import of Chinese goods. And the reason that matters is that basically blows a hole in their credibility with their European partners because they came up with what sounded like a clever proposal. Namely, we would collect 
the tariff for ourselves, and we would collect the one for the European Union, and we would depend, we would decide which goods are coming through the UK onwards to the European market, and we'd uh, develop some sophisticated mechanism for distinguishing between the two uh, final destinations for for market products. Plainly, that isn't going to work, and that in effect is is dead in the water. So, to sum up, a customs union is an external barrier. Uh, that the member states agree to have regarding um, tariffs. And to be outside of the customs union for the UK moving forward, just as another piece to the economic, the potential economic hill that the UK is going to have to climb should they continue through with, right. the, Brexit, now, with the Brexit. Now, here's here's the tricky bit. Those who were really enthusiastic about leaving the EU said, we will be able to make fantastic trade deals all over the world. But they're beginning to notice that the EU has already made trade deals with most of the relevant uh, countries, with with the exception of the the US. Uh, And therefore, there's very little available for the UK to engage with in other countries that isn't already preempted by the EU trade agreement with those countries. That's why the Labour Party is arguing that it makes sense to stay within a customs union or or the customs union with, with the European Union. But again, uh, Michelle, if, if, if the idea is to stay within a customs union, then as Brendan kind of laid out, you're talking about a process that would seemingly Uh, bring up the question again of why are we leaving the EU to begin with? Michelle? You're absolutely right. Leaving the customs union is going to raise all of the issues that that Brendan said. It's about collection of the sales tax or the VAT. It's about um, stopping at borders to meet or not meet EU rules and regulations on fisheries, agriculture, and so forth. It's also about, um, you know, things across borders like data privacy rules. If you yeah. have electronic commerce now, uh, will Britain meet and satisfy European data privacy rules? Because not all trade is physical. And uh, so there are many, many issues. And then the last thing, as, as Brendan pointed out, if you're not going to be doing this successfully and letting Chinese goods through, there are things called rules of origin. How much will products to get tariff-free access have to be um, made? You know, the component will be European, Chinese, or whatever. So there are so many things that are still really so t- both technical, regulatory, uh, economic, that are very difficult. And the British have been saying, you know, we can have these border, uh, borderless Europe, whether it is uh, the different proposals they've put forward. But anybody who's been to any border that's supposed to be easy, whether it's the Canadian-U.S. one or the Norwegian-Swedish one, will know that, you know, there isn't anything that is a frictionless border. Vehicles get stopped, agriculture gets stopped, people get stopped. Go ahead, Brandon. The the House of Commons has a parliamentary committee which looked into this. Most of uh, the members of that committee were people enthusiastic about um, leaving the European Union, especially the unionist uh, members from Northern Ireland. But they have concluded in their report that there is no frictionless border in the zones that Michelle has just mentioned. And, in, and they've also included the example of Switzerland's right. border with, with France. 
So there is no working model of a frictionless border solved by technology. And that's very important because the UK signed up in the end of last year to an agreement in which it said, if these technical solutions aren't possible, we accept that Northern Ireland will remain in effect for the time being, both in the customs union and in the single market. And that then poses a very important policy choice for the Conservatives. Do they have exceptional arrangements for Northern Ireland and different arrangements for Great Britain? And how will that work (laughs) out with their uh, democratic unionist allies? Or do they, and this is what is driving them berserk, do they allow the Irish question to drive the entirety of the UK's policy response? Because the easiest resolution of this is to go for the option of staying in the single market and the customs union. Then yeah. there are no Irish questions uh, of, of fundamental import. Right. Um, but they're then locked in that trap that they're out of the EU with no power but accepting all of its laws. It, it, it is amazing to me that we've kind of reached this point. And it, even though you said we, we need to have that that kind of that turnkey vote in Parliament to be able to really change the mindset here. Uh, a lot of this does come back to play on, the, as you both have said, the wallets of the people in the UK and to a degree why they couldn't see this coming. I mean, obviously, people's wallets are you know not reactionary in advance. Right. They're reactionary you know, in retrospect. So if, if you have a vote in most countries in the world where the question is posed as, do you love foreigners more than you love yourselves? We know what the answer is. Right, yes, exactly, Um, yeah. But if you pose technical questions like, do you favor a customs union? Do you favor a a, a regulatory single market? Do you favor differentiated treatment of products and services? Do you favor complex passport arrangements for finance? Then they'll say, I I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I I need expertise. Need time to think about it, yeah. what What we had, unfortunately, was a referendum called by a Conservative Prime Minister who thought he was going to win it uh, and it was going to use it as a mechanism, as he thought, to put the European question to bed uh, within his party. In fact, he um, presided over a referendum in which uh, it was clear what remaining might involve. It was utterly unclear what leave might involve. Now, uh, 52% overall voted to leave. But they didn't vote on a specific leave package. They were told lots of different things about what leave might entail. And that's where the chickens are coming home to roost because the leave side uh, chose particular questions to highlight, notably migration. And I'd I'd like your listeners to to notice that this is another area where the May government and Mrs. May in particular have lost credibility. In the, the, the last couple of weeks, it has emerged as a result of very good media inquiries that Caribbean immigrants to Britain in the 50s and 60s who came on a boat called the Windrush mm-hmm. have been harassed out of the UK, even though when they arrived as Commonwealth citizens, they had full British citizenship rights. Mm. But they've lost their uh, de facto citizenship and been obliged to go back to the Caribbean as a result of policies Mrs. May put in place when she was Home Secretary. And that was to create, quote, unquote, a hostile environment, unquote, for illegal immigration. What it's done, of course, is to make her officials um, pursue a ruthless paper trail on anybody who might appear to be uh, suspiciously sure. present in, in Great Britain. Now, why does this matter? It don't, not, not only matters because of the gross injustice done to these people of, of Caribbean origin, 
and to their their friends and families. But it also matters because it affects the credibility of the UK on the agreements it's just signing up to on how it will treat EU nationals in the aftermath of leaving the European Union. So uh, that is, uh, and you might think that that's a a technical question attached to um, uh, immigration officials and how they've conducted themselves. And that's certainly how the conservative politicians are, are trying to play it. But they unquestionably put those policies in place, and Mrs. May in particular yeah. did so. So all of these issues are affecting uh, May's credibility and her difficulties. And I, I think the crises cannot be uh, long postponed. And Michelle, that sounds a little bit like what we've seen here in the United States uh, regarding the immigration questions that uh, that President Trump has been uh, so out in front on. I also think it's the one thing to realize is that, first of all, Britain in this particular case wants to do trade deals with its commonwealth. And here it is, um, marginalizing and maligning a group that come from the commonwealth. And so I do, I mean, there's differentiation amongst immigration groups in the United States. I mean, we were hearing today about uh, those with H-1 visas and spouses, you know, making it more difficult. So there's lots of immigration issues and groups. And I would say that the big issue for Britain is credibility on the immigration issue. But when we think of the number of people from the Windrush ship that came over, it was a small segment of the population and small numbers. We're talking about 3.5 million potentially EU migrants. And it's not clear um, right now if, you know, they'll be given a grace period, but their status after that grace period will be uncertain. And given what's happened to the Caribbean residents, it does not look good uh, from an EU perspective, which is perhaps also why this European Charter of Fundamental Rights and the importance of the European Court of Justice is what the EU is pushing. But I do think the issue of immigration is salient in Britain. It's obviously salient here. And um, it also uh, is impacting, you know, the climate can also impact students coming into your country. I mean, there the changing nature here in the United States, but also the changing nature in Britain may result in a decline in EU students coming to Britain or foreign students to the United States. Just, just to complicate matters further, the European Union, most of it is inside a common travel area, the Schengen zone. But Great Britain and Ireland have long had a common travel area. It, however, is not strongly on a legal or statutory basis in either state. It's not the result of a formal treaty between Great Britain and mm-hmm. Ireland. Until now, the EU has been quite happy with that common travel area. Right. And both the British and Irish governments have indicated their desire to preserve it. But you can obviously see if there if there is no strong border check across the island of Ireland, yeah. as promised by the Conservatives yep. and their commitments, uh, and if there's no uh, return to any kind of hard border, the question will be about the porosity of the Irish border. Uh, people will be able legally to come from the EU into Ireland and then go into the United Kingdom via Northern Ireland. And what that means is that 
if the UK is serious about the commitments it's making to its own people about uh, regulating migration, all of that control will have to be done away from the border yeah. through employers' checks, through invigilation by the police, by requiring <clears throat> hotels and landlords to report on the uh, migration status of their citizens. Uh, their residents. And that's unprecedented in uh, British life. That would produce a, a regulatory regime of the kind that they typically call continental Kafkaesque intrusions <laughs> on <laughs> fundamental liberties. But that's basically what they're locking themselves into. If yeah. they don't have a hard border on Ireland, that's the regime they have to establish at home to have credibility. <laughs> so they continue to think and talk out of both sides of their mouth. Michelle? Um, there's very much, and you hear this perhaps, and there's very much a fixation on numbers as well. And that's, you know, you know, the declining numbers and the number and the, I think the Windrush and the enforcement of it, the inflexible enforcement is exactly the kind of environment that, that Brendan is describing here. And this has become a, a political albatross for Theresa May. So I do think that it's not just about the very technical customs unions, it's about yeah. credibility. And I think there's a, a sense in Britain sometimes that we're going to ask for this, we're going to have red lines, but they are not bargaining from a position of strength. And as that deadline uh, comes further and further, we're going to see a lot more concessions on the British side. So, so Ulster Unionists' famous slogan is, no surrender. <laughs> Mrs. May has surrendered all <laughs> along the way so far. Right. The question is, how many more surrenders can she survive? Uh, we, we await the answer to that so, question. So then I'll bring up the question to end this that we've talked about before, and I think now we're getting even to a closer point of really need, needing to discuss this more, uh, is who potentially is in line to be that next person for Theresa May's job? I mean, is Jeremy Corbyn kind of the default at this point? Well, if if there were to be fresh elections and if the Conservatives were in disarray, Labour would calculate that its chances are quite good. Uh, in May, there have to be local government elections. Unfortunately for the Conservatives, they're mostly concentrated in the big cities. But I expect the Conservatives to take a very severe hit on, on that occasion. Uh, people talk about some uh, possible candidates, including Boris Johnson, whose credibility, I think, is seriously damaged. Yeah. Yes. Ma Michael, Michael Gove, who was a leading player in the uh, Leave referendum. Uh, who may still entertain uh, ambitions of becoming prime minister. Yeah. But part of part of the reason she survives is lack of consensus on a successor. Yeah. So she has to be uh, absolutely demonstrably and massively unpopular uh, before, uh, I think, the somebody wields the assassin's knife. So then, Michelle, uh, is this going to, like uh, Brendan suggests, is this going to be somebody new that, that we are going to be hearing about in the months to come that, that will be the next prime minister? Well, there. I think that the as as Brendan really pointed out, people are looking at what are the alternatives, and you know, one thinks about somebody like even Amber Rudd, who's Home Secretary, and she's been very hurt by the Windrush um, issue right now. And so we're not looking, you know, Boris Johnson has very little credibility. 
it's you know the question is who who will wield the knife you know um sort of julius caesar and brutus it's going to be very very difficult and there is no front runner uh that we can see part of this is the dynamics within the conservative party and the the disagreements and so it's she's hobbling on, so to speak, right now. Yeah. But we don't know how many concessions she'll be able to give. I, I think it'd be impossible for her uh, n- to survive a customs union vote that yeah. mandated. Yeah. The, I think yeah. she, if she did not resign after that, it would be extraordinary. Yes. Michelle, as always, great talking to you. Thank you for joining us on the phone. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Brendan. Great seeing you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. We Thank will you, see Michelle. you again very Thank soon. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.